Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Today on The Breakdown, Congresswoman Young Kim is seen as a rising star in the Republican Party. She's one of two Korean-American women elected to Congress from Orange County in 2020. Born in South Korea and raised in Guam and Hawaii, Congresswoman Kim sees her story as representing the American dream. She'll join us to talk about her first term in office and her role in what could easily become the majority party in the House next year. But first, Marisa, and not unrelated to sort of midterm elections, uh, Justice Stephen Breyer today finally formalizing uh, what we've been hearing now for 24 or 48 hours, that he is retiring from the bench. He's been under a lot of pressure from liberals and Democrats to get out and, uh, you know, make sure we can uh, make sure that they can, um, you know, find and confirm another liberal, relatively liberal justice. And there's some, you know, a promise that jo- uh, Joe Biden made to appoint a black woman. And um, there are several on the list. Right. So Kentani Brown-Jackson, who is a D.C. Circuit Appeals Court uh, judge, is kind of seen as, I think, the the top of the heap in the sense, um, in part because she was confirmed last year and got three Republicans in the Senate. But our own Leandra Kruger, uh, Supreme Court Justice here in California, is also on the list. Uh, she went to Yale and Harvard, pretty young, 45 years old, uh, appointed to the bench by former Governor Jerry Brown. And um, I mean, it was interesting, you know, reading kind of a little more deeply about her. She's really seen as a pretty moderate is the wrong word because it's it's not a political thing, a cautious jurist, right? She is not some flaming liberal like. Yeah. And I think of all the appointments that Jerry Brown made to the Supreme Court, she was you know, the most conservative, not to say she is conservative, but the most conservative of that batch. Um, and I remember when Jerry Brown appointed her, no one had heard of her, and right. partly because she was not a, a lawyer in California. She was in D.C. And, you know, I think arguing were, cases in front of SCOTUS. Uh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. She was there at the Supreme Court on occasion working for the uh, Solicitor General in the Obama administration. But I remember when, you know, she was named here, there was some consternation in the black community because uh, there was somebody like you couldn't find a black judge or, or attorney in California. California. You had to go all the way to the East Although Coast. Although to be fair, she was born in she know, was born in LA. in LA. No, that's true. Grew up in Pasadena. That's true. But I moved think, her yeah. family back. Um, she's she's an out of the box. Kind two of kids pick. now. Yeah, but again, like I think when you think about a lot of the debate over the court and sort of. Uh, whether, you know, it's having a crisis of sort of confidence with the American public. I mean, her sort of legal record really shows that she is not very willing to overturn precedent without good reason. And and I think like, I mean, the the fight publicly is going to be around Democrats and Republicans and, a, you know, the, the majority. But when you hear about how the courts interact. Um, I do think that sort of her personality very much fits in line with what a lot of justices have 
put forward in the past, regardless of their sort of political or, or ideological leanings. Yeah. And I think, you know, the same could be said of uh, the other woman at the top there, Justice Jackson. She's 51 years old. Right. And she comes from that sort of feeder court, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, where you know a number of Supreme Court justices have come from. But yeah, I think Leandra Kruger has that kind of... Um, I don't know, pedigree is the right word, like in terms of what she's right. done in her career. And uh, you know, I do think that would be more of a roll of the dice for Joe Biden, right. you know, especially when you bring in California courts and <laughs> gosh, you know, who knows what yes. they're going to find. And, you know, and as you said, uh, Justice Jackson has been approved, uh, confirmed once before. And, you know, would likely be less risky. Yeah. Other news this week, though? Other news this week, Nancy Pelosi, who some were speculating might not run for another term in Congress, did announce formally in a letter to her constituents and a video that she is going to run. And uh, not a, you know, surprised, not surprised, but, you know, I think that uh, the question is really, is she still going to be in the leadership? She promised progressive she would step down uh, from the leadership after this term. So we'll see. I mean, it looks like she could be in the majority. I, if I'm going to make a prediction for 2020, yeah, let's hear it. Let's for 2023, here's my prediction for 2023. <laughs> she gets reelected and maybe does not, does not serve two, two full years. That's or... Me. Does she even serve at all? I mean, she can resign at any moment, right? And I think Nancy Pelosi is um, very aware of the dangers of becoming sort of a lame duck, whether that be, you know, with as speaker or even as a congresswoman. Um, it's very unusual for somebody in that position to stay on after they've been in the top leadership role, right? And so I do think that I got a call this week from a political consultant who's like, what is happening? And I was like, yeah, well, <laughs> you know, she could she could, she could, could quit at any time. Yeah, well, I think there was concern, too, that if she didn't run, it would sort of send a signal, right. uh, you know, further the, you know, the consternation of Democrats. It would also potentially hurt their fundraising and recruitment of candidates, that kind of thing. So she's uh, taken that off the table. And so um, we'll see what happens. Uh, there's a, a lot of a lot of moving parts in the midterm. Elections. Right. A lot of disappointed uh, potential hopeful members of Congress probably here. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> All right. We are going to take a break. First, I want to remind you that you can get more of our analysis and political reporting by subscribing to the Political Breakdown newsletter at kqed.org slash newsletters. All right. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Orange County Congresswoman Young Kim. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And joining us now is one of several people who flipped a California congressional seat from Democrat to Republican in 2020. Young Kim currently represents parts of Orange, L.A. and San Bernardino counties. Congresswoman Kim, welcome to Political Breakdown. 
Thank you for having me, Scott and Marisa. It's good to be with you. Good well, thanks for having yeah. uh, joining us. Listen, we want to begin with your bio because you've had such uh-huh. an interesting life. We mentioned you were born in South Korea, and then your family took you to Guam and then Hawaii uh, before you came to California. Like, what do you remember about those places that you lived? Well, it's uh, yes, you're right. My journey to California, which we call it the mainland has really (laughs) taken different locations. And every educational, uh, you know, I guess uh, step up has been in different locations. First of all, I uh, was born and raised in South Korea, graduated elementary school there. And then my family came to Guam, finished high school. I mean, junior high school there, went to Hawaii, went to St. Andrews Priory on Queen Emma Square. I probably talk about it a lot because several of my friends who may be listening uh, is also from Hawaii. So I finished my high school there and came to California and convinced my parents and my siblings that older siblings, because I'm the youngest of seven, that I, as much as I love island style. I don't want to be an island girl forever. (laughs) I was going to say, was it hard? (laughs) So here I am in California. So I went to USC, fight on. So not only did I receive a college degree and made my family so proud, which who my parents thought when they saw me walk across the uh, stage to receive my college diploma, they said, oh, my God, our American dream is coming true. Mm. But that was only the beginning for me. Mm. I would go on and, of course, you know, do what I do now. But let me tell you this. When I walked off the uh, uh USC campus with a college degree. I also walked away with a future husband of mine. (laughs) (laughs) So we've been married for 35 years, happily married still to this day, four children, and now I'm a grandma. Congratulations. Here I am. That's great. So uh, before we go too far into the future, though, I mean... Was what was it like leaving a place? You know, a, a lot of folks we talked to maybe left when they were so little they couldn't remember. Uh, this must have been a pretty sort of important memory, like leaving, going to Guam. Was it difficult? Did you have any problems like oh, fitting in? It was very difficult because when I left Korea, I didn't speak a word of English. Okay. Neither did my parents. They were much older than me. So imagine a young girl like 11-year-old, 12-year-old, 13-year-old, really helping my parents when they go to DMV to get their license Mm -hmm. or any legal documents that they get. Here I am being their translator, interpreter. It it was quite a a learning experience. And I I became a quick, uh, I guess, learner. And I think I matured faster as a result. But let me tell you one thing about growing up on the island of Guam. My mom would always take me down to the beach and help me with a trash bag and say, you have to pick up cans and bottles. (laughs) I thought I was just helping her clean up the beach with the folks who partied over the weekend. But what she did was recycle those cans and bottles and whatever the small amount in a modest way that we were able to collect, she would bring it to church as an offering, which later we found was spent or used as a down payment to Hmm. build our own Korean American Presbyterian church. And Hmm. it still stands on that island. I'm very, very proud of the little thing that I was able to do. And that was because, you know what, my mom always instilled in me the value of giving back to this country. Because this is a country that gave my family a wonderful opportunity to realize the American dream. So to me, America is not only land of opportunity, but it really made me realize that anyone who works hard, achieve their goal, 
they can achieve the American dream and live it the way that I'm doing. Yeah. Well, and you did not get into politics right away. I think you uh, worked in a bank for a bit and then you were controller of a women's yes. wear manufacturing firm. Um, so, you know, how did you know, how, how did you get to that point and how did that you know, lead you to politics? You know, when I was on uh, in Hawaii growing up um, at the time, granted, it was like late 70s or uh, early 80s. We didn't have computer. <laughs> so if you wanted to get into business, you had to be really good at 10 key editing machine. Remember that? <laughs> or I mean, so I would uh, really, uh, you know, practice uh, well and then type typing and 10 key editing machine. I would go on to competitions and really good, be good at it because my dream was at some day become a very successful businesswoman. And that's why I came to USC to study mm -hmm. business with an uh, accounting uh, emphasis in accounting degree. And then after I graduated, I worked in the, uh, you know, as a controller in the manufacturing firm. But when you learn the trade secret by working for someone else, you know, oh my God, I gained my confidence to do my own. So I went on to become my own small business person and I succeeded in it until it was by my husband who introduced me to then state Senator Ed Royce, who would later become a member of Congress. So I was introduced to Ed Royce and that was the opening door for me to get into the public service. And here I am, I mean, yeah. working with him for like 20 years as a congressional staff and then later running for state assembly and becoming the first Korean American Republican woman to serve in Southern California district in Sacramento. And then later when Edwards retired in 2018, I would run for that seat and here I am. Yeah, I wonder, I mean, we, we just discussed, you know, the, the Supreme Court appointment and uh, Joe Biden's pledge to, to appoint a black woman. I know that one of the reasons um, or one of the things you did in Ed Royce's office was act as a liaison to the Asian American community. And I just wonder sort of what that experience taught you about the importance or not of representation. So the district that I represent, 39th district, which was formerly at Royce's, and now I have the honor of representing, is a very diverse district. And as a result, when Ed Royce asked me to do a community outreach, I was in charge of doing a very aggressive outreach to the Asian American community. I looked at the very uh, diverse makeup of what makes our district and our state of California unique. And I put together APCAC, which is Asian Pacific Congressional Advisory Council, brought the leaders of various community ethnic organizations. And we had roundtable discussions, topical forums, and listened to the issues that they care about, from which I not only become more exposed and be more familiar with the issues. For example, we found that not all Asian community is monolith. Mm -hmm. Very diverse. community yeah. has a specific issue because they fled the communism after the fall of Saigon. So that uh, fighting socialism is really important to them. Yeah. Uh, Chinese, Taiwanese or Korean community is uh, they wanted to come to America to realize the economic and, you know, uh, opportunities that's afforded to them to uh, have an American dream. So that is different. So we talk about that. But when it comes to Korea, which I'm you know, very familiar with the the consistent threat from North Korea, which is now the uh, the nuclear state. Right. That consistent um, threat in the Korean Peninsula is very real. Yeah, uh, Chinese and Taiwanese, and the the threat in the Taiwanese Strait is very real. So we learned that those are very important issues, and I became uh, quickly 
you know, accustomed to those issues. And so I've learned early on, you need to listen and learn what the issues are in the community in order to be a better representative. And that really helped me in my, uh, in the retrospect, looking back, uh, I think it had really prepared me for the work that I'm doing right now. And so that that's what I'm doing, uh, yeah. being a very bipartisan, independent uh, legislator yeah, representing want, a very diverse district. We want to ask you about that. If you're just joining us, by the way, I'm Scott Schaefer, and I'm here with Marisa Lagos. You're listening to Political Breakdown. We're talking with Republican Congresswoman Young Kim. She represents a district that includes parts of Orange, Los Angeles, and San Bernardino counties, although that's going to change after political redistricting. We might talk about that in a bit. Um, I wonder, you know, talking about, you know, immigration we touched on a moment ago, and I'm just wondering, you know, if you could change anything about the way your party has talked about immigration, the kind of policies that it has supported or opposed, what would it be? How would you like to influence that? Uh, First of all, when we talk about the Republican Party, a lot of people think that because I'm an immigrant, because I'm a woman, that I should naturally be a Democrat. They are puzzled by why I'm a Republican. I tell them, I believe the Republican Party is the grand opportunity party because I was uh, starting a business um, during the uh, Ronald Reagan era when we were going through the sweeping tax changes. And I understood early on, this is the party that create pro-growth policies to allow all Americans to succeed. This is a platform I also ran on. And I think the fact that I won and more minorities, women and veterans, dynamic candidates also won, shows that the American dream is alive and real and that lowering taxes, expanding opportunities, empowering and protecting communities resonate with many Americans of all walks of life. So to me, Republican Party allowed me to do those things. And this is a party that really believe in those, um, you know, uh, the policies that I just talked about. And I'm going to continue to be a very proud uh, member of the Republican Party and help to pursue that. You talk about immigration. We are all for legal immigration. What we're seeing at the border, that is not what uh, Republican Party stands for. And uh, I think that is why uh, someone like me who have immigrated to the United States through the legal means is what we should be advocating. Well, can I push you on that, though? Because under the former president, there was a big move to restrict legal immigration, um, including, you know, allowing family members to bring folks here, which I believe is is part of the way your family was able uh, to legally immigrate. Has that been hard to see? Because I think, you know, to be fair, a lot of former President Trump's advisors and, and folks pushing him really would like to see just less immigration overall. I think because we have a record number of illegal immigrants uh, in the United States, and we continue to see that because our border is not secure. At some point, the resources are being drained in order to uh, provide the same type of services uh, that, you know, to all Americans uh, enjoy. But because of the record number of millions of illegal immigrants still here, our resources that are allocated for the legal immigrants the legal permanent residents, the naturalized American citizens. I think this is something that we need to put under control. So that's what we're trying to do, not block the legal immigrants or be perceived as an anti-immigrant party. So I back to defer that the Republican Party or previous administration or under Republican administration that we had uh, you know, blocked 
the ability for the immigrants to come here through their legal means. I wonder, you know, there is one group of uh, immigrants who were, you know, here illegally, the dreamers. They were brought here as children, very young. And I'm wondering if you feel any differently about them, would you be open to supporting citizenship for them, assuming that they... Absolutely. I mean, we talk about DACA, and I've been very clear from the very beginning. The only scene they have is having a loving parents who wanted to give the same opportunity and live the American dream for their younger next generation. Now, these are the DACA recipients are primarily young kids who was brought here through their parents at the age of maybe two months or six months or one year old, two year old. They don't know of their status until they were ready to enter college. And during that time, they are shocked to find that they are not uh, documented. Those are the ones that I've been very supportive and advocating their uh, participant to become legal permanent residents. And I will be very supportive of that. And I would like to make sure that uh, they are protected. And I have, I do have legislation, especially helping those um, children in this category who are aging out at the end of 21, when pa their parents are getting their citizenship, uh, because through that process, they became over the age of 21, they had to be taken out and they don't become a beneficiary and get the same permanent residency or citizenship. These are the people that I want to rescue. So I have a legislation to support them as well. Well, let's get into some other policy areas. Um, yeah, you've talked, I mean, I know you have worked hard to reach across the aisle. Your voting record shows that in some cases you have definitely uh, broke with your colleagues and supported some Democratic bills or others. You did vote against the bipartisan infrastructure bill, though. Can you talk about why? Um, you've, you've really touted the need for improving roads and, and the funding needed for that. That's correct, Marisa. I did support the framework in the Problem Solvers Caucus that I serve on. It's a framework to get this discussion going to address the crippling roads and bridges and all the infrastructure need that our country is facing. And this is something the previous administration under Donald Trump and even before that have been advocating. So we need to address this. That's why we push for the framework to get the conversation going. What ended up getting is obviously the Senate passed version, which is pretty similar to something that I could support. But when this came before the House, for a House floor vote. It kept delaying the time of uh, voting on it and it became very partisan. They wanted to tie it to the passage of the Build Back Better or Build Back Broke because of the amount of uh, dollars that will be spent without having how we're gonna pay for those. So there are a lot of provisions that were included that includes the higher prices through the gas tax increase and many others that I did not support in the framework. Therefore, I could not support it, especially when it was tied together. Mm -hmm. And we already saw early last year, we passed the $1.9 trillion early in the package through the very uh, partisan way. And then this infrastructure, another 1.25. And then again, the ability to pass another uh, Build Back Better legislation that will add to our growing national debt when we are already 
over that. And then just last year alone, we spent over like $300 million just pay on the interest expense on the national debt. That's why I couldn't support that. Yeah. I want to ask you about something that occurred very early in your time in Congress. Uh, There was the January 6th assault on the Capitol. I know that you were in the building at the time, you and your staff. I know that you also uh, voted to support uh, or endorse the Pennsylvania election results. And now there's this you know, this committee that's looking into it. There's only two Republicans on that committee, including Liz Cheney, Adam uh, Kinziger of Illinois. What do you hope comes out of that investigation? Well, the accountability. What really happened? How it happened? What can we do going forward to prevent another situation like that? I hope that the January 6th commission would be truly bipartisan, but you know, From the beginning, when it was selection process, the idea was to have a bipartisan January 6th commission to have an equal number of Republicans and the Democrats. And our side, our leader, Kevin McCarthy, um, uh, suggested certain members, they all rejected it. And they chose the two members that are serving on it. So I just didn't think that it became a partisan uh, commission. But I really hope that this commission will produce a very a constructive uh, analysis and recommendation going forward as to how we can prevent something like that and how to address it. I mean, do you think that that uh, Minority Leader McCarthy came to that in good faith? I mean, I, I know that he wanted to put on folks like Jim Jordan, who really had said that they didn't believe in the election results, which, you know, you and others did vote to uphold. Again, I'm not going to speak on that uh, particular issue as to what happened. But again, Kevin McCarthy uh, suggested five names and Nancy Pelosi right out, flat out uh, denied it. So as you said, Marisa, I voted to certify that uh, Electoral College because that was what I was given as an elected member to uphold and support the Constitution of the United States. And that was the only constitutional duty that I was given. That's why I voted to certify the election. I want to get to something a little closer to home. There was a big oil spill off the coast of Orange County a couple, three months ago now. Beaches were closed. Marine life was threatened. uh, Tourism was threatened and so on. And, you know, some people see it as yet another reason to get ourselves off of fossil fuels. How do you see it? One of the craziest things I saw was, uh, you know, President Biden relying on the um, the OPEC um, and not, you know, and also giving the Russia the ability to, uh, uh, you know, I guess, produce more oil there. Uh, I think that is one of the things that uh, we are doing uh we're not doing well through this administration. So we need to be more reliant domestically instead of being more reliant on, you know, other other countries who may not have the best interest at heart. So you're not just in relation to the oil spill. I mean, that's your district. I know you you were out there. You saw uh, the devastation. Um, so to you, what what are the lessons from that to prevent that kind of spill from happening, even if oil production continues? I uh for clarification, Marisa, my district does not go through that. It's uh, my oh, colleague, Congresswoman Michelle Steele, Steel, yeah. who represents uh, Huntington Beach and then the port area. Obviously, my district is, uh, I mean, we're close to yeah. the San Pedro port complex that has Port of LA and Long Beach. And I think so a lot of your constituents use those beaches, right? 
Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's close to beach, but it's not in my district. No, yeah. But again, uh, the point is, it is very important. And I work closely with my colleague, Michelle Steele, to address those issues. And I give her credit for actually getting out there to seeing it. And then she has several legislation that I supported, and especially with the ocean shipping uh, reform legislation, through which we hope that we can uh, prevent some of those uh, future oil spills. And uh, I think uh, more importantly, um, uh, it's, it's all contributing to the uh, ongoing crisis, the supply chain disruptions, and not having the ability to move those goods and the containers off the ships and move them through. So there are a lot of issues that we're talking about. So I know uh, supply chain is probably another thing that you want to talk about. <laughs> yeah, well, if we had time, we, we only would. have a couple more yeah. minutes here. I want to ask you about redistricting. I mentioned at the yes. top that you're going to be running in a different district. It's going to be much more friendly to Republicans than the current district, which is much more closely divided. I'm wondering, how do you think that's going to change your approach to policy uh, issues or votes on big issues? Well, first of all, yes, the district has changed. And now uh, I'm running in the new uh, 40th district. Why do they say the district may look more uh, favorable for a Republican? It doesn't matter what the boundaries are, what the district numbers are to me. I'm focused on delivering results for my district. And because of the uh, California, uh, we lost large number of population, maybe over a million of Californians moving out of the state. We lost for the first time a congressional seat. So my district has changed a lot, especially Orange County. One seat that we lost in California was lost in Orange County. But I'm excited to run for re-election in that new district. That includes uh, current districts in the North Orange County, I'm very happy to have the Yorba Linda and I'm Hills, Chino Hills areas. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting to know and introducing myself to the new communities down in South Orange County. All right. We're going to, you know, I have a record to show. <laughs> All right. We're going to have to leave it there. I'm so sorry. We are just okay. out of time. But thank you so much for joining us, uh, Congresswoman Young Kim. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. All right, that's it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter as well. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.